Good to be together on uh, Father's Day. I invite you to uh, take your Bibles and turn to page 1202. Uh, the Bible's there in the seats. And this morning as we continue on in our um, study of First Peter, I invite you to follow along. If you've been uh, tracking with us for the last uh, few weeks, you know that uh, uh, God has this design that's built into um, all of our lives uh, based on his ideas of authority. And uh, we've been talking through these passages of scriptures that talk about submission on a number of different levels uh, that are uh, part of all of our lives in recognition of God's ordained authority, whether it's governments or bosses or in society and having younger men. Uh, you know, Peter 5, 5, 1 Peter 5, 5 says, um, <clears throat> young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so there's this kind of principle that God has uh, intended to be uh, marking all of our living at all different levels in our society. And so we've been tracking that. And last week we looked a little bit at marriage and saw that marriage is intended to mimic or reflect our relationship with the Lord. And so even as the Lord always goes first, the Lord always initiates and he always initiates with sacrificial love. And, um, and then wives respond as the church responds to Christ with this submissive uh, kind of love, and it's easy to submit to a Father in heaven who loves us sacrificially and, and so on. And so when we left um, off last week, we were in First Peter 3 and uh, verse 7, uh, which spoke to the husbands, you know, in this same way, in this submissive way, uh, you husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect uh, as heirs of the kingdom of life, as a weaker partner, physically weaker, and we looked into all of that fellow heirs of the grace of life. And I, I can't help but think, aren't you glad that the Lord, the only begotten Son of God, treats us with respect, uh, even though we're much weaker than him? I mean, you know, he rules the world, and so uh, he could sneeze and we could be dust, uh, just like that. But he has respect for us. He's considerate of us. He knows how many hairs are on our head. He calls us by name. And this relationship of the church, you know, to the Lord and uh, having marriages reflect that relationship and how much the Lord respects us and, and yet is so much stronger than us. And, and so on. I think every guy can understand that and, that. and yet out of that consideration and respect, he sacrifices everything in order to love us, uh, even to the point of shedding his blood. And so, and then Peter today, we come into verse eight and Peter kind of makes this summary statement after talking uh, all this uh, ways through, uh, we get to kind of a, a summary statement in the eighth verse, and he says, finally, finally, and he says, all of you, it's for everybody, all of you live in harmony with one another, and then he, he gives six different characteristics or character qualities that it takes to uh, be the people that God called us out of the world to be. Six different qualities. And I want to uh, suggest to you this morning that this is a description of a God-first believer. You know how we talk all the time about pursuing a God-first life? Well, if you were to do that and be serious about it, what would you look like at the end of the day? As you pursue this kind of life and you get to be you know, a senior citizen, uh, how would that take shape in your life? What does a mature Christian actually look like? Uh, what are the qualities that Peter lists here uh, that go into making a God-first kind of believer? And uh, you'll notice that he starts out with this, you know, live in harmony or unity. 
be able to get along with other people, uh, people especially in the family of God. Live in harmony or in unity. And uh, again, and then there's a number of character qualities that support this kind of overarching, you know, desire of God for his family to get along. And um, you might remember Jesus right before he went to the cross. He prayed. He got down on his knees and talked to his father in heaven. And one of the things in John chapter 17 that the Lord prayed about and sweat over was, you know, Lord, please make all my followers to be one, even as you and I are one. As we get along, as we have this father-son relationship, may all of the people that are part of our family get along like we get along. And that was his prayer. And uh, Peter's kind of echoing that here and saying, you know, that harmony or unity is a very important uh, issue to our father in heaven. Uh, Harmony. Um, When you think about this, you know, uh, I think I'm afraid sometimes that our American spirit of independence kind of conditions us against this desire that God has that in his family, the church, people would really experience a level of harmony or unity that would stand out as being very different from the world in which we live. And uh, there's a way of looking at this that that would kind of interpret that um, all of these uh, following qualities, the other five qualities, are what it takes in order for us to live in that kind of harmony in order for us to kind of get along with one another and actually enjoy one another's company. And uh, I would say to you that this harmony or unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that everybody's the same and everybody has to think the same and have the same opinions about everything. Uh, That's just not what it means. Uh, It's being able to cooperate in our diversity. And I would say that harmony takes sacrifice. In order to have that kind of harmony... In order to have that kind of oneness that's so important to our Father in heaven, and I think very important to every earthly father that his family would experience harmony, it takes sacrifice. And um, in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul wrote to the uh, church in Ephesus, he said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. Barb and I were married uh, 42 years this past week, and so we took a little ride and went out for lunch, and, and uh, I was just thanking her for the effort that she put in for 42 years to get along with me. Because guess what? It takes a lot of effort. I mean, really, I married up, right? I mean, my wife puts out the effort to live with me. It's, I shouldn't go more. I'm going to get in trouble. But... <clears throat> I think it's very important to God that his family reflects the harmony that he makes possible by his spirit's presence in our life. And uh, to be able to overcome those sinful kind of ways that destroy uh, harmony. And so it's Father's Day, and our Father in heaven highly values this harmony. And so finally, uh, the conclusion of this discussion that Peter's talking about, it, it all starts, I think, In um, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, hey, I'm urging you to live as aliens and strangers among the unbelievers in such a way that when Christ comes back, you know, our lives will be validated. And he'll be able to point to us. He says, you know, I urge you, live as aliens and strangers in the world. Abstain from those sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day that Jesus Christ comes back. And then Peter says, set all your hope on that day. Don't look for validation, you know, as you're getting there. But on that day, when Christ comes back, you'll be so glad 
that you listened to God. And so what does it take to have that kind of harmony? What does that take? What does a God-first believer really look like? And I think you'll, I don't know, uh, you know, how you feel about this, but when you look at these five qualities and ask yourself, if that's a God-first believer, where am I at in my ascent to what God created me to be? Because here's what he says. He says, live in harmony with one another. Here's, here's what it'll take. Be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. And so think about this for a minute. Sympathy. Be willing to enter into the next person's pain. Be sympathetic. Be willing to suffer with other people. You, you no doubt remember that uh, the Apostle Paul, what he wrote to the Corinthian church, said that the, the church of Jesus Christ is like a body. And like your body has all these different parts, remember? And, uh, and, and, and then the church is made up of all these different parts. And each part is extremely important. And so when he wrote to the church, he said, look, the eye can't say to the hand, hey, I don't need you. You don't matter to me. Your eye can't say to your hand, I don't need you. Right? Or, I mean, it would just be silly. And, and a head can't say to the feet, you know, I, I don't need you. And nobody in the family of God can turn to the person sitting next to them and say, I I really don't need you. I'll be independent. God created the family so that we could depend and lean on each other. That's what the church is designed to be, God's family, in the the midst of uh, an unbelieving world. And Paul goes on, he says, on the contrary, he says, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. He says, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part rejoices, all the other parts rejoice with it. Isn't this true in your body? Like if you have, you know, if you have a weak back, you might have everything else in your body working great, but boy, if you turn your back the wrong way and you're out of commission, you have to lay on the floor, the rest of your body's really not too helpful because you've got one part of the body that's really hurting and it affects your whole body. And so in the life of the church, you know, when people are hurting, the whole body feels it. And likewise, and sometimes I think it's harder even, that when somebody rejoices and something really exciting and good happens, the whole body gets excited with them. Like, uh, we've had, we have a, um, you, you know, our, we have, I don't know, 50-some-odd churches here in the New England area, our group of uh, churches. And uh, we started a new church about five years ago in Granby. And uh, a guy by the name of Clark Poff is the pastor there. They've been going for about five years or so. Well, guess what? Last week, uh, they had really, uh, something really spectacular happen to them. They had a guy, and um, he owns this uh, mansion, uh, trying to sell this uh, for millions of dollars, has 85-acre mansion with a big, huge horse barn up in Granby. It's horse country. It's beautiful up there. We have this little church meeting in a school and so forth, and a guy from one of our other churches happened to be doing some work at this guy's house, and uh, the guy says, oh, it's such a pain. There's so much you know, property. There's so much to take care of, and I, I, I've been trying to sell it for a couple of years. I can't get rid of it, and da-da-da-da-da, and he's asking millions of dollars for it. So the guy says to him, I think he's a plumber, and the guy just says to him, you know, you ever think about giving it to a church? The guy's like, that's a great idea. Gave this 
multi-million dollar piece of property with a beautiful modern horse barn that'll make a sanctuary and a mansion. I mean, a, a new mansion, not one of those old things that needs a lot of work. A brand new mansion, very well appointed and all this kind of stuff. And you can actually go online, look it up, look for million dollar houses in Grand Bend. You can get a video tour of the place. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. Isn't that exciting for our church up there, a brand new church plan? But what's the temptation for me? Boy, I wish something like that would happen to me. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool if somebody dropped a couple million dollars on us? You know. Isn't that like, we're so quick, you know. But when one part of the body rejoices, shouldn't we all be like, that's fabulous. This is really a great, exciting thing that's, that happens. And that's what Paul is saying, that we share the joys and the sorrows of life. But I'll tell you what, you cannot be sympathetic and selfish at the same time. You cannot enter into other people's lives if you're selfish because you're holding on to everything for yourself. And uh, you notice in the Bible, um, you know, if you're a, a me-first person versus a God-first person, there's a whole different way of life. Aren't you happy for God that he's got this new multi-million dollar campus for a brand new church, not steeped in traditions or anything, able to reach out to young people? I mean, all, instantly, all kinds of ideas come into this church's life. What is God leading us to do? And so, and so forth. How exciting. And uh, you notice in the Bible that over and over again, um, our Father in heaven is sympathetic and even defensive of those people who have the least economic and social power. All through the Bible, you will read that God is a defender of the poor. Not once will you read that God is a defender of the rich. Just doesn't say it any place. God's a defender of the God is a father to the fatherless. He's always sympathetic with those who have the least social and economic power. Over and over again, we read in the Bible that God introduces himself as a defender of the most vulnerable. He's sympathetic to the orphans and the widows and the strangers or the immigrants that are among us. Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. I want to say to you um, that um, righteousness, when we think about it, is social. When we think about righteousness and God calls us to be righteous, we often think about morality, and that's certainly a part of it. But that's an independent part. A bigger part of righteousness is how we relate to other people that God created, as we sang about this morning. Other people in God's world that he loves and that he cares about. And uh, a number of different places, but here's one. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor the one who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. And don't shed innocent blood in this place. God is always this father who is concerned for his children to have the least amount of economic and social power. Uh, you might remember in the book of Job, uh, we had our men's Bible study study the book of Job, and, and uh, Job in, in the Bible is described as the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And so let me just read a couple of verses from Job, and, and he, he's answering to God, and, and he says, you know, I rescued the poor who cried for help. This is how Job lived, the most righteous man on the face of the earth, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. 
It was eyes to the, I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Job's like, this is how I live. This is what righteousness means. It's got a social component. And so when Peter comes forward and says, you know, be sympathetic. It's just an extension of our God who's been sympathetic with us and who has a special concern for those who need our love and our uh, affection the most, our sympathy the most. Our Father in heaven is sympathetic with our weaknesses, and he wants us to join him in being his presence in the world in which he's placed us. The second thing Peter says is love. Love as brothers. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Love is the supreme mark of maturity, as you know, we read all over the Bible. And love is simply putting the other person first. It's just putting the other person first. It's what Jesus did for you. When he went to the cross, he just put you first and put himself second. And he offered up his life for our salvation. Love is brothers. Jesus said, you know, the, all the commands in the Bible come down to um, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I think you cannot, I, I think there are three non-negotiable absolutes to the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love are three non-negotiable. You cannot be a Christian without faith in God, hope in what God's promised us for the future, and love. And uh, in 1 John, you might uh, remember some of these words, but in 1 John chapter 3, uh, John writes to the church and he says, you know, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. How much sympathy and love does God have for us that he would put his own son on the cross so that we could be called the children of God, so that God could reestablish a relationship with us? And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't get us is that it doesn't know him. Dear friends, now you are the children of God. And then he says this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. How do you know whether you're really a genuine Christian? How do you know whether or not you're really on the road to becoming a God-first believer? Well, we know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love our brothers and sisters. And then he says this, anyone who does not love remains in death. You cannot personally experience the love of God and not be able to give it away and not live it. You can't have God fill your life with it and not be changed in the attitude of love. Anybody who doesn't love remains in death. Anybody who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So this is pretty important to God. Be sympathetic. Love his brothers. You know, this is how God showed his love among us. And so on and so forth. We love because he first loves us. If anybody says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's lying. Oh, I love God. It's just me and God. But those people in church, I just can't stand those people. I just go worship on the beach because they're all hypocrites. You know how many times I've heard that? I said, look, if you can't love the next person, the brother that's in your family, the love of God isn't in you. The love of God transforms us. It changes us. Once we experience love... You know, you know that saying about how, um, you know, if you grow up with hate, you end up hating. If you grow up with love, you end up loving. Well, of course, if you grow up with the love of God, you end up becoming a loving person. 
And uh, 1 Corinthians 13, of course, you know, describes God's love for us. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with that. But in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love isn't all soft. Love isn't, sometimes love is tough. Sometimes love is hard. When we say, love your brother, sometimes love is tough. Just let Jesus, you know, talk to you. Just sit down with your Bible and, and, and let him, and read like Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Let Jesus talk to you and see how tough he is with you. It's like repent or go to hell. I mean, there's a tough side to love. There's a truthful side to love. One of the things it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that love does not, love rejoices with the truth, but refuses to get in bed with evil. Refuses to, to delight in evil. There's a, a right and a wrong to love. There's a, there's a standard to love. There's a, you know, it's God's way or no way. Uh, God's love is full of warnings to us about consequences and what will happen to us if we blow him off and reject his love and so forth. Love rejoices with the truth but refuses to delight in evil. Love is hard work. The last command that Jesus left us in John chapter 13 is, you know, uh, this is the new command that you love one another as I love you. And again, if the love of God gets into us and that reality sinks into us, it will change us. It will transform us and we will become loving and we're to love our brothers. And um, I, I just think this is such a, um, uh, such a challenge. Jesus loves us by sacrificing, by going first. He loves us by forgiving us. He, he loves us by telling us the truth. Sometimes I think, you know, we have three choices before us every day. And the three choices are something like this. The first choice is you can return evil for good. Somebody does good for you, and you can return evil. That's the way that Satan operates. Um, I talked to a guy not so long ago, and uh, he's like, you know, I worked so hard at my job. I was so honest. And then the boss's nephew needed a job, and I just got canned. And I've spent all of these years, you know, in this job, and, and, and I'm getting evil for the good that I invested it's like a wife who, um, you know, is a faithful wife and raises the kids and so forth. And, and, uh, and then the husband just abuses her. And here I am giving out good. And here I am sacrificing. And here I am mimicking the Lord. And then he turns around and just, he returns evil for good. That's every day we have that choice. You can do the same thing. Uh, the second choice, uh, it seems to me, is kind of more on a human level. And we can, turn, we can return good for good and evil for evil. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's kind of the way a lot of people, if you treat me good, I'll treat you good. If you, you're mean to me, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You know, you cut me off on the road, I'm going to get in front of you and cut you off. You know, it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's, a, it's the get even principle. Or the third choice is we can always offer good in response to evil, which is what God does in, in our lives. He offers us good in response to our sin. We can return good for evil. And, uh, of course, First Peter, you know, he's telling us that Jesus is our choice, and it's a life of grace. It's a life of uh, giving blessing. It's a life of offering undeserved favor, a life of mercy. It's, it's loving as brothers and sisters, and without it, there's no harmony. Haven't you been hurt by somebody in church somewhere along the way? I had one lady who just was so upset, and she she was so mad at me, and I'm like, what did I do, you know, that fostered this anger that you have? You walked right by me in the hall and didn't say hi. I'm like, well, you know, sometimes there's a lot of people in the hall. Maybe I didn't see you. 
She was livid. And uh, I just think, my goodness, you know, how about returning some good for my evil? And how about if the church were to operate on that basis that every time we encountered some hurt or some wrong or some slight or some offense, that we would be braced to offer grace, the undeserved favor that we all understand we all need? And what would happen in the life of the church? And how would the world look at the church when those people act like that? How do they do that? What's their source? Where does that power, where does that strength really come from? Love as brothers. And then the next thing he says as part of this harmony is be compassionate. Be compassionate. It's the opposite of being hard-hearted. A lot of times I think we become hard-hearted to defend ourselves and not have to get involved. Be compassionate, God's word says to us. And uh, I think compassion is acting on behalf of God to meet the needs of others. Um, A lot of times when people are not compassionate and they're hard-hearted, it's because some hurt has happened to them in the past that they've never resolved. And they've said at that time when they were hurt, I am never going to let that happen to me again. And so they become hard-hearted instead of compassionate. But I'm telling you that a God-first person who lives the life that Christ died to give us is a person who finds it within themselves to become compassionate. Uh, Compassion is acting on behalf of God to meet the needs of others. Sympathy is maybe the attitude, but compassion is the action. Compassion is what we do in response to the sympathy that we feel. To be compassionate is to be tender-hearted. It's to not be afraid to feel the pain of somebody else and to allow yourself to be moved with emotion and affection. Aren't you glad that God is compassionate towards you? Compassion. And uh, again, I think uh, the next thing says Peter says is be humble. And in order to live like this, we have to be humble. Uh, humility before God and before one another is the foundation for putting other people first, uh, just like Jesus put us first, right? Philippians chapter 2 talks about consider others better than yourself. Um, and humility comes from a dependence on God. Once we realize how dependent we are, If it weren't for God loving us, if it weren't for God's compassion and putting Christ on the cross in our place, we'd be doomed to an eternity in hell. And once we realize how dependent we are on this love and compassion and sympathy from God, it begins again to fill our lives and we begin to relate to other people with it. I think one of the ways that people develop pride is that they compare themselves with each other. One of the ways that you can develop humility is to compare yourself with Christ. Because he's the one that we were created to be like. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, we're humbled. And uh, again, the Philippians 2 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Self-assertion is the opposite of humility. And humility is that deliberate decision not to retaliate. It's Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Humility, humbleness. And so I just ask you, you know, is this the portrait you have in mind when you think about becoming a God-first believer? A God-first believer is somebody who is able to be harmonious, somebody sympathetic, somebody loving, somebody compassionate, you know, a humble person. And I think it's like Peter is saying to us, you know, that our ability to live out there in the world for Christ starts by living in a community, in a family of God's people, where we learn how to be harmonious, how to be sympathetic how to be compassionate, how to be loving, how to be humble. 
And as we learn it in here, we become those qualities. And then when we're out in the world, we actually are able to act as that dispenser of God's grace into a harsh, broken, sinful world. And um, it starts in this community where we practice and we, and we become mature and we actually become who we are called out of the world to be so that we can move out. And then uh, Peter goes on to say, look, when you do move out there, here's what's going to happen to you. He said, um, evil and insults are going to come your way. You go try to live like this. First do it in here and then become that and then go out there. And he says, look, do not, verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. A God-first person is planted into this world in order to bring blessing or grace or undeserved favor to the world all around us because the only way people can be reconciled to God is to experience from us, the church, the body of Christ, this undeserved favor, this grace based solely on Christ and what he did on the cross that enables people to dare to think that there might be hope for them. And as we're able to live like that with one another, uh, then as we move out into the world, expect to receive uh, evil and insult. And I think you know, this is, again, another issue. So many Christians think the opposite of this. So many Christians think, well, now that I'm a Christian, you know, now that I have this relationship with the living God, uh, what I'm going to get out in the world is only going to be good and appreciation and all of those kinds of things are going to come my way. And uh, instead, evil happens and insults happen. And, and we think, wow, you know, I thought that now that I became a Christian, my marriage would never fail. You know, my loved ones would never die. Uh, there will never be accidents in my life. That's what happens to somebody else. And, you know, um, my kids will never rebel. I'll never lose my job. I'll never have money problems. But that's not what God says. God says evil and insults will come to you in the world. And that's reality, isn't it? And we have this brand of Christianity that simply is not biblical when we think like that. Evil and insults await us in the world, and the world is not as it should be. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you that I'm planning to preach through Ecclesiastes this summer, so I've been working on it a little bit because our theme this year is to find soul satisfaction, to be so content in Christ, like Paul says, you know, in every circumstance I've learned to be content and to be satisfied and to content. And so I'm going through Ecclesiastes and trying to get this into my head a little bit. And in Ecclesiastes, I'm reading things and I'm thinking, wow, this is so different than what people think. Listen to this. Uh, you know, Solomon, richest, wisest person, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun. Everything uh, Solomon talks about here is what's under the sun, like trying to find life on earth, and this is how it is. And he, so he says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in high places while rich occupy the low ones. I'm thinking, when was this written? Fools are put in high positions while the rich occupy low ones. I've seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Like you might go to work, you might dig a pit, and then of all things, you're doing a good thing, you're working hard, and then you fall into it and break a leg. Just spoke to somebody and their son's a builder and had a hunk of wood fall and break his hand. 
You know, the world's not as it should be. Here I am working, I'm doing my job, I'm working hard, I'm providing for my family, and this happens. And Solomon says, you know, the world's not as it should be. He said, whoever quarries stone might be injured by them. Whoever splits logs might be endangered by them. And he just goes on like this. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not always to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food always come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to us all. This is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. You can, in other words, you, you're not in control. You can do everything you can do right, and bad things can happen to you under the sun. And you can beat yourself up and say, you know, what did I do wrong? And I would say the only thing you did wrong is you didn't read Ecclesiastes. <laughs> right? And he goes on, he says this, you know, when I applied my mind to understand wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw that all, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. In other words, God's in control, and you will never totally understand what God is doing. Is that not true? Things happen in your life, and you think, God, boy, if I was you, I wouldn't have orchestrated it this way. And all you get is, yeah, but you're not me. I know what I'm doing. I am in control. You're not. You will never be able to totally understand it. So I need you to trust me. I'm your father. I created you. I love you. I have a plan for you. Trust me. Believe me. Entrust yourself to me. That's what I need from you. And I will direct your ways. And so, so Peter says in, in verse 9, he says, you're not in the world to get even. You're not in the world to defend yourself. If you look at that verse, uh, verse 9, Peter says, uh, don't repay evil with evil. Don't get even. Don't repay insult with insult, but with a blessing. Now listen to this. Because to this you were called. Oh, no. You mean there's a calling on the life of a Christian? And it's to live like this in a world like ours? Do you know what? If I were to take that seriously, it would kill me. Exactly. Take up your cross and follow me, and every day you'll die trying to live like this. And Jesus will resurrect you to a life that you can't even believe possible that brings the satisfaction and contentment that the Lord promises. This is a tough call. This is not the description that most people put in their minds when they say, oh yeah, I want to live a God-first life. Harmony, compassion, sympathy, love. Giving a blessing for being cursed. Slowing down so the guy in front of you doesn't have to cut you off. Living out this reality in our hearts. You know, to this you were called, Peter says. We have a, a calling in our life. If you're wondering what to do in your life, if you're sitting around and you say, I'm so bored, all I do is watch TV. Listen, you've got a calling on your life. We live in a world full of injustice, full of brokenness, full of hurt all over the place. There's all kinds of issues. And God says, move out in my name 
And don't be afraid to get involved to the point where it will be a sacrificial, you'll die trying to do this. But don't worry, I'll resurrect you every day. I'll give you more life. And, uh, and then I'd say, see what God does when you enter into this um, description that he's given us. Um, one of my favorite verses, you know, of, one of the favorite things that Jesus said is, he said, look, I came here to give you life and to give it to you to the full. To give you life and to give it abundantly. And uh, the first part of that verse says, you know, the enemy, Satan, is here to take our life. But Jesus came to give us life and to give us life to the full. And he's telling us this is the way you find it. Sympathy, compassion, love, involvement. Being a blessing when you encounter the insults and evil of the world. And you will find this life that Christ came to give, this life that's abundant. And then um, Peter quotes from the 34th Psalm in order to sort of prove his point or validate uh, what he's been saying here. And uh, you got to love this. Look at verse 10. It says, whoever would love life. I think, I wonder how many people really want even to love life. What would you say? Would you say, oh, I love life. Or do you kind of mope around and say, boy, life stinks. Life is terrible. You know, life is uh, 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 one problem after another and so forth. And I would say, you know, there's a way to love life. And he quotes the, the psalmist who said, whoever would love life and see good days. Now, if you think about it, wouldn't you, you just don't go there because you don't think it's possible. Right? We like, love life? I'm just trying to get through life, you know? I think it's never right for a believer to give up on life. Part of maturing is realizing that a lot of times what looks bad can turn out to be really good in God's hands. Uh, when we're connected to not just life under the sun, but over the sun, when we're connected to the God who's on the other side of the sun, uh, even the bad stuff can turn into good. Have you ever made a decision, you know, I'm not just going to passively see what happens in life, I'm going to love life. I'm going to be one of these persons that Jesus came for that enables me to live life abundantly and to the full. I'm going to make that decision that I want to love life. I think some people try to escape life, right? The more vacations, the more, you know, uh, alcohol, the more drugs, the more... It just escape life. And then some people endure life. So how are you? They're always hanging in there. Get the feeling that they're hanging by their fingernails, you know, and they're just ready to... And other people actually enjoy life. And I'm so excited about Ecclesiastes because he talks about the inequities in life and the chances that happen in life. Yet all through the book, he's like, learn how to enjoy life. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Enjoy eating ice cream, he says. Enjoy, you know, there's, uh, it's a really interesting book. Yeah, there's a lot to deal with in life under the sun. But listen, there's a way to enjoy it. And so Peter is quoting the psalmist. He says, whoever would love life and see good days. Here's a couple of things. You got to keep your tongue from evil and from lying. You know, the Bible says that you speak out of the overflow of your heart. So when you are this transformed person and you receive this love from God and this grace from God and it gets a hold of your life, it changes your heart. And your understanding of yourself, your own identity, and so forth. And, and your tongue then begins to reflect this change that's in your heart. And so if you want to have a great life and you want to enjoy life, you have to keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from deceit or lies. You just got to tell the truth. 
And uh, not only that, and that's kind of the negative, but in addition to that, verse 11, there's a positive side. If you really want to enjoy life, you must turn from evil and go do good. Do good. You know, in Ephesians, Paul wrote to that church and he said, God has a plan for your life from before you're born. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. There's a job for you to do. There's a reason why you're still on the earth. And so Peter says, if you want to enjoy life, figure out what it is that God has for you to do. Go do it. And not only that, but he must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. Now listen to this verse. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I can't think of anything worse in life than to have the face of our Father in heaven be against you. When you confront evil, imagine your own face. Now multiply God's holiness by a gazillion and imagine the face of God confronting evil. People don't like to talk about this, they don't like to go there, but you know, if you read the book of Revelation and you realize that someday God is going to come against all the evil in the world and you read how terrible a day that's going to be. And I say, thank God that he warns us about what's coming. You know, when I was a little kid, seven years old, somebody described to me what would happen if somebody rejected God's love and what hell is really like. And that's when I became a Christian. That's when I surrendered my life to Christ because I understood, you know, that, that God loved me but if I reject his love, there's this horrible judgment that's waiting. God's doing everything he can to pull out all the stops to invite us to take advantage of his love. But it's coming to an end. And there is judgment for those who rebel against God. Because God made us and he created us and he has claims on our, our lives. And I can still remember this guy painting this picture and I think about, you know, um, what could anybody possibly do in the face of an angry God? You're toast. You're done. You're dust. Imagine the, the face of God being angry. Go back in, into the uh, book of Genesis and, 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 and just think about how God got angry at Adam and Eve and their sin and how he cursed the earth and how work is a pain now. And how he allowed death to become part of our experience because of the the face of God being against the evil. And sometimes, you know, when I watch the news and I think of the results of God being against us that are still with us today, the tornadoes that blow through, uh, the fires that burn houses, the floods that destroy. Why, is, why do we have to live with all that? Why is this horrible stuff? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis, you find out that, that God's face was against the evil of rejecting his love. And he cursed the earth. And part of that curse is so much with us today. Think about all the anguish that is surrounding death when, when people die and, and accidents happen and sicknesses come and, and, and all the anguish and the hurt and the loneliness that all results from the face of God being so against sin. There's only one way that you can approach the face of an angry God that we all deserve because of our sin, and it's through the gospel. It's through the shed blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross. You need to realize that God took all of that anger that we deserve and dumped it on his only begotten son, the only perfect person who had no sin of his own to have to deal with. And said, if you'll trust me, 
if you'll turn to me and believe me that I put your sin on his body and let him take the hit of my anger and wrath, if you believe me, my angry face will turn into a smile in your experience. And there's nothing better in life than to go through life with the smile of God, our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your word, and uh, it's so revealing to us. And I I dare to say that uh, for many of us, especially the men, we wouldn't probably think that a God-first person would look like this, full of sympathy, compassion. We think of toughness, independence. We think of protecting ourselves, not uh, becoming vulnerable, and all those kinds of things. And yet here, Father, we see the portrait of Jesus and how he deals with us, how he's sympathetic to our cause, and how he paid a huge price because of his concern for us, how he loves us as brothers and sisters, uh, how compassionate he is, how he desires this uh, harmony, Father, that comes, and, and how humble. Here is the Son of God with no sin at all, all the power in the world, empties himself, humbles himself, becomes a servant of ours, dies in our place in order to assurge the angry face of his Father against all sin and provide a way for us to be reconciled. Oh, I pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, we would hear what you're saying to us here and that we would surrender to you, that we would submit to you, that we would appreciate your fatherhood and what you've done on our behalf and that we would take full advantage by trusting you, by submitting to you, uh, by being, becoming like you in order that we might be like Jesus in the world in which you've placed us in uh, 2013. And uh, help us, Father, to learn these things from one another in the church, in the family, and then become that and then just be that out in the world. And when we get beat up and we're insulted and we encounter evil, may we come back here and experience again the healing that comes from being a part of the family of God. And it's in Jesus, your son's name, that we pray. Amen.